You know, it seems that every Christmas, uh, we have a parade of public figures twisting the biblical narrative so that they can push their own political and personal agenda. Have you noticed that? Yeah, we, we took the Christmas decorations down. I, I didn't know we were doing that so early, but I'm still talking about Christmas, okay? Did you know that actually uh, there are 12 days of Christmas traditionally celebrated in the Orthodox Church, starting on Christmas Day going to January 6th? So it's called Christmas Tide. And uh, one leader said, we do a great job of anticipating something. We don't do a very good job of staying in something. And so we get all anticipatory and man, the day after Christmas, boom, we're cleared out. Maybe we ought to sit there for a little bit longer. Yes, maybe just a little bit longer. Maybe if we didn't start decorating in August, it would be easier to do that. But that's a whole nother story. Um, but anyway, there are these political leaders, these public leaders who like to push their own political and personal uh, agendas. On Christmas Day, a presidential candidate and mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg, caused a shrill of Twitter activity. And if you're on Twitter, uh, I'm sorry. And, uh, and if you're not, you may not want to get on there. But this shrill, I mean, of all sorts of pro-Buttigieg, anti-Buttigieg stuff. It was just crazy. Here is what his tweet said. Today, I joined millions around the world in celebrating the arrival of divinity on earth who came into this world not in riches, but in poverty, not as a citizen, but as a refugee. Now, I do my very best not to be political, and I'm not trying to be today, uh, I'm not slamming the mayor whatsoever. But I would favor this sentiment among Christians and churches. And these two tweets are by Christian leaders that I greatly admire. Scott Saul says, the longer it takes people to figure out where we stand on politics, in all likelihood, the more faithfully we are preaching Jesus. Politics will divide. It used to be that we were clear about what we thought, and it seemed that everybody thought that. But I've begun to realize that politics are really not the kingdom of God at all. And I don't, uh, you can think what you want, and I think what I want, but I want the kingdom to be central in my life. Do you? Here's what I really love. Pastor Rich Veloto said, the church is not to be found at the center of a left-right political world. The church is to be a species of its own kind, confounding both left and right and finding its identity from the center of God's life. I love that. I don't want people to know if I'm left or right. Uh, I don't tell people how I vote. Uh, I do promote certain policies that I think are biblically based, and I think that is my responsibility. But my primary role is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to push a political agenda. But I found Mayor Pete's uh, tweet interesting and intriguing. And on one hand, I was sympathetic to what he was trying to say. And on the other hand, I have some real issues with it. First... As to Jesus' poverty, there's real disagreement among biblical scholars as to whether uh, he would be considered born into poverty. 
I myself have been on record, as you probably know, in stating that I believe Joseph and Mary were indeed poor. I don't believe they were homeless, which is what some people want to push. I do believe they were poor, and the basis of that is because when Jesus was presented at the temple according to religious law, he was presented with an offering of two turtle doves instead of a lamb and a turtle dove, which was normally required. You see, the Mosaic law said for every male child, they should come, the parents, and offer a one-year lamb that is spotless, without blemish, and then also a turtle dove as an offering. But if you were poor, you could offer two turtle doves. And Joseph and Mary, the scripture tells us, offered those two. So that's my basis, biblical basis, for why I believe they would be considered poor. Again, I don't believe they were homeless because we read that when the Magi arrived to minister and worship them, they entered into a house. Not, they weren't still out on the streets. And the only reason they were in the streets of Bethlehem is because they were traveling there and when they got there, there was no room for them in the inn. And so they, they had to put up camp there in a stable and lay Jesus in a manger. But as to this notion of Jesus entering the world as a refugee, I think Mayor Pete is getting his Christmas facts mixed up just a little bit. I understand it a little bit in that Jesus is certainly God with us, he put on flesh and blood. He probably doesn't fit by normal standards, but I don't think that's what Pete is talking about. I think there was a time, not I think, I know there was a time when Jesus, his parents were refugees. They were refugees, but that wasn't specific to his birth. That was a period after his birth. In fact, maybe as up to as much as two years after his birth. Joseph and Mary were fleeing persecution by Herod, actual persecution. And an angel warned Joseph to go, and they fled into Egypt, making them refugees. That's the definition. But maybe instead of using biblical narrative to push political agenda today, we ought to just let the Bible speak for itself. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. Now, when they had departed, this is the Magi, the wise men who had come to worship Jesus, who went into the house where they were. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night. And he departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Verse 16. Then Herod... When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet 
Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod is one of history's notorious tyrannical leaders. He's right up there with Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Nero and Stalin and Hitler and Assad, maybe Putin. He was born uh, to an Edomite father and a Jewish mother, not a descendant of King David, so he shouldn't have been sitting on the throne. He was not even a descendant of the Hasmonean royal line, which were the Maccabees, which had tried to bring Israel back to the Lord. But in 37 BC, at 40 years of age, Herod was installed as king of Judea by the Roman Senate to reward him for his loyalty to the empire during the Parthian War. After his installation ceremony, which was held not in Jerusalem, but in Rome, he walked out of the Senate building arm in arm with two of the most powerful men in the world, Caesar Augustus and Mark Antony. And as he walked out, he was celebrated and applauded, and then he led a procession down the main road to the temple of Jupiter where this newly appointed king of Israel offered a sacrifice to the chief deity of the Roman imperial religion. No wonder the Jews hated Herod. And think of all the compromises this leader had to make in order to make Rome okay with him, that he wouldn't fall out of good graces. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that this paranoid king who is trying to maintain his, his grip on power, who didn't want anything to undercut him, that he decided to massacre all the children two years of age and under in this little small town of Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. Now, we don't know that this is verified or corroborated by any other historical account except from Matthew's gospel, but I can tell you without a doubt that it is certainly in keeping with his ruthless nature. This is who Herod was. This type of evil was not beyond him. Herod ordered the murder of his own wife and three of his own sons. That is verified by independent historical account of Josephus. Augustus, who was arm in arm with him when he was appointed as king of Judea, Augustus said of him, it was better to be Herod's dog than it was to be one of his kids. And as Herod's own death drew near, as he was getting close to death, he decreed something to ensure sincere mourning at his funeral because he couldn't be a verified, he couldn't be assured of it. His decree was that one member of any family would be put to death as a sacrifice to him. This is who Herod was. So 
Slaughtering a few innocent children is certainly not out of the realm of possibility. The slaughter of the innocents, as the church has commonly called that, which is celebrated in the church calendar uh, on Saturday, yesterday, the 28th, on most calendars, some the 27th, the slaughter of the innocents is not beyond what Herod would have done to keep hold of power. And, and the tyrants throughout history have done the, the worst kind of atrocities in order to maintain power for themselves. It's still going on today. People who are in power, who are corrupted, don't care. <clears throat> you know, I think one of the remarkable things about the Bible is that it doesn't gloss over the atrocities that we face. It doesn't whitewash evil. It's right there in the Bible. It's right there for us to read. That can sometimes make me squeamish when I have to try to explain it to somebody. Little Emily Sweeney just came to me during the greeting time and she asked me this question. She said, how do we know that God is real? Uh, we had 30 seconds left during greeting time. <laughs> and so I, you know, I was like, great, let me just give you that right now. Those big questions like, how do we know God is real and why is there evil and suffering in this world? Those are, those are pretty big. Anybody know that? And it's sometimes hard to explain uh, when you have to do this on a regular basis. So sometimes just the idea that the Bible doesn't take out and sanitize itself makes it hard on me. It'd be so much better if it was cleaned up a little. But no, it's right there in black and white for us to read. The thing about this is not trying to understand it, but recognize that we're not left alone in it. That's the key. You see, I can explain and argue till I'm blue in the face. And some people whose hearts are not open to God will never believe. But for those who are, who are open to what his message and his kingdom may mean, they are the ones who have hope instilled into them because they recognize that though they cannot explain it and though it is beyond them as to why such suffering and evil is here, they know they're never left alone. God didn't leave us alone. He sent us his son. He sent us his son for our own hope and perseverance, even in the midst of such atrocity and misery. Here in Matthew's gospel, all the, all the fluffiness and wistfulness of Christmas story is stripped away as this child, Jesus, is placed squarely in the middle of a fallen and brutal world. They didn't clean it up before he came. They didn't tie up all the loose ends before Jesus rode into town. They didn't make him a victorious conqueror riding into Jerusalem. Oh, that'll happen someday. But this day, they made him that being the Trinity, they made him a child, a baby, 
wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. They, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they sent Jesus into the planet, into the world, that we might have someone with us. Emmanuel, God, with us. There's going to be a day when he reconciles everything, when he wraps it all up, when all the loose ends are tied up. But in this day, he didn't choose to do that. He chose to be with us. Precisely the world Jesus was coming to was the world that he knew. He was not surprised. He came into it wide-eyed He understood the misery and the decay and the sin and the brokenness that this world was in. He came to proclaim the kingdom of God to all those who would hear. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is right here next to you. It's at hand. It's here. Come on in. The water's fine. He said, be reconciled. To the Father. And then he paid the penalty of our sin. He paid it so that we could be restored to fellowshipping with God and that we could be given a new and better way to live. Matthew doesn't present a Savior who immediately makes everything all right, but rather a Savior who plays the long game who recognizes everything that we see is not all there is, who understood that there was something being played for that was much bigger than this moment in time, working through everything to bring about his good and perfect will. The Savior Jesus enters human suffering in order to redeem a broken creation. When I think about the evil that's in the world, When I think about trying to give explanation for that, and there are some tremendous works out there. C.S. Lewis has got some tremendous things to understand the evil and suffering that we see all around us, and that the argument in so doing is that if you have to say there is no God because of suffering and evil, the fact that you said there was evil indicates there is a God. So you're you're in the middle, stuck. So Lewis has got some great writings and others have got great writings, but the best thing that I can do for us this morning is not try to explain it, but to give us context for it, to help us see that God one day will wrap it all up. But in the meantime, he came to be with us in it. That feels good. It feels good not to be alone in the midst of what you're facing. It feels good that it's his power, his glory, his presence with us that enables us to move forward, to draw up to him, to reach out, to love selflessly. That God with us is what gives us the power to walk on. When I think about all the evil tyrants that are out there, including current day ones, like Herod and all of his company. I'm reminded of a parable that Jesus gave. If you want to turn over to Matthew 13, 
in your device or your Bible. Matthew 13 and verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, when the weeds appeared also, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Verse 28, and then he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? The weeds. And he said, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you pull up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus spoke in a lot of parables. And this is one that really articulates some of what we're talking about, at least just a little bit. But so that you don't think that I'm taking like Mayor Pete, scripture and twisting it into my narrative, let's look at what Jesus gives as far as the explanation. Matthew 13, 36. And then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, "Uh, Lord, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. Evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Man, he just spelled it all out for them, didn't he? Verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and bound with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Did you hear that? Do you hear it? I believe Jesus is not trying to explain away evil here. As much as he's trying to give us context for the bigger story that's going on. He's trying to help us see that there's something bigger, not just what we're facing, not just our struggle, not just our temptation, not just the evil that we're facing at work or in our country or even around the world, but there's a bigger narrative that's all about, that's all that's going on. And we're all in that narrative. There is a story that he, is, that he has drawn us into. 
It's a story that began before creation, but it certainly includes all of our history. It also includes the birth of a savior and a manger in which he was laid and a cross to which he was nailed and a tomb from which he walked away. (laughs) And in this story will also include the end of the age, he calls it. When all those, all those that were lawbreakers and causes of sin will be bundled up and taken care of. God cares about evil. God's going to deal with evil. God is going to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. But we don't have to see it quite yet. It's still yet to come. This story will include that end of the age. And this is the beautiful picture. I love this when he says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now, I have always heard that Jesus, there's not going to be a sun uh, in this new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem. It's so much bigger than just going to heaven to be with Jesus. It's so much bigger than just, oh, we're up in the clouds playing our, our harps, you know, with our angel wings flapping. That's, that's not biblical. What God is promising in the end of the age is a new heaven and a new earth. And out of the heavens will come a new city. Down out of the heavens, oh, it is so much bigger than what we think. And in that place, all of the injustices and all of the evil and all of the things that have caused us such grief and heartache, it will be wrapped up. It will be bundled. It will be burned away. We're in this story. I think Jesus is saying, we're a part of it. And in this story, he gives us hope and purpose and promise, even in the face of hopelessness, even when we're facing suffering, even when we face evil. I love the way the apostle John puts it in John 1, verse 4. In him was life And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. (laughs) Glory to God. The light of Jesus shines in our darkness, and I understand there's a lot of evil out there. I understand there's a lot of suffering that people are going through. Jesus understands too. Jesus didn't remain Removed from it, he came to be with us in it. He came to comfort us and to bring us encouragement and hope in the midst of it. He came to produce character and perseverance and self-control by the fruits of the Spirit operating in us so that no matter what we face, what evil is there beyond us, we have God with us. For it is Christ in me, the hope of any glory. The light of Jesus shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overtake it. Oh, it tries. They they overplay their hands, all those evildoers, all of those uh, sons of the devil who have been sown into the field growing right next to us. And they may even look like wheat sometimes, but they're a weed. And Jesus is going to deal with it someday. 
We can choose the old way of Herod or the new way of Jesus. That's the choice we have, all of humanity. That's what you and I can choose today. We can choose the old way of Caesar and Herod and Nebuchadnezzar and Nero and all the other wicked rulers and tyrants of the land. Or we can choose the way of Jesus. He is the way, and his way is far better than anyone else's way. We can choose the sword, or we can choose the cross. We can choose the politics of greed and might. Or we can choose the reign of our Lord in Christ. We have to decide if we'll pledge our allegiance to the realm of personal power or to the kingdom of selfless love. It's a choice we all have to make. You can't do both. Following the Jesus way of loving our enemies and doing good to those who persecute us, to those who hate us, loving them regardless and praying for them. To the one who forces us to go one mile, we go an extra mile. To the one who takes our cloak, we give them our tunic. To the one who slaps us on one cheek, we turn and offer the other. This is the way that we go when we do the Jesus way. It's not safe. It might even expose us to evil. There might even become harm come our way. Jesus never promised us safety. He did promise he'd be with us. So what say you? What's your choice today? The way of Herod? Or the way of Jesus? In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome it. Would you pray with me? So many questions, Lord, in our world today regarding you and why evil is so rampant, why the seemingly innocent have to suffer. The questions are asked across the spectrum. Those who follow you oftentimes find themselves with those questions. Those who deny you and argue against you are also asking those questions. But you didn't come to give us an answer. You came to be our answer. You didn't come to rescue us in this life. In fact, you said, I'm not taking them out of this world. I'm sending them into the world. Not to be of the world, but I'm sending them there to do my purpose and my will. So I pray, Lord, that we would not be those who are looking for escape. We would not be those who are looking to hide and shelter ourselves. We would not be those who are trying to preserve our position, our influence, our equity. 
but we would be as our master and Lord Jesus, who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself of all divine privilege. He became nothing that we could be your something. And I pray that you would help us as a community. It's not about size or quantity or numbers. It's about devotion to your call, commitment to your kingdom. If you could take 120 and change the world that started with just 12, then you can take this size of group today and change our community. Pray that we would not grasp for comfort. We would not try to pine after our own security or safety. We would truly deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow you no matter what that is because we know that you are always with us, that you will never leave nor forsake us and that your presence there with us makes all the difference in what we face. Help our community, Lord, to do that in these days, in this coming year. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.